0: Your copy of God's Word, and would like to open to the Book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians, not Colossians. I actually intended to read have Colossians read, so that we can hear similar things from different letters and as things that are uh, that, that I think the Holy Spirit wants us to know. and And while you're turning there, I want to take us back uh, for a few moments. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but the pandemic, while we could say it's been gone and done for three years, the government officially declared it gone and done two months ago, but the pandemic has wreaked havoc in our society in in many ways. Between that and our own uh, proclivity for rugged individuals, apart, it isolated us and separated us from the people that we need. I was listening to a podcast this week that had a conversation between Russell Moore and, and uh, Sam Alder. Both of these guys are believers. Both of these guys have roles as apologists. They often will go and speak and share the gospel, and they've, been, they've authored books, and they've spoken on podcasts. They both live in Nashville. But among the many things they discussed in this podcast this week, they talked about effects of the pandemic. They noted that the isolation, that growing comfort with being alone, that seclusion of the pandemic has both forced us into our own echo chamber where we're only hearing the things that we want to hear, but it's also created divisions in our culture that seem to only be expanding. And some Mental and emotional breakdowns and turmoil. Others have been turning to unho- unhealthy outlets. And yet our society only seems to be able to promote solutions that cater to one side of a debate. We, we say that everything will be okay if you just agree with what I say. Contempt and cancellation have become key words. And yet I believe, I believe, That God has given us in the beautiful design of the community that we call the church, an environment in which we can flourish if we'll only make space to do things God's way. As we continue to look at our biblical community and take this cursory glance through the book of Ephesians, we're reflecting on what biblical community is and how it operates. And I think one, one value of biblical community that was hindered by the pandemic and is hindered by our individualistic society is that idea of intimacy. There's a nearness to which we've been called as a church, if we would but embrace it. And before we dive into the intimacy that I think we see here in Ephesians chapter 4, I want to briefly consider the foundation upon which this community is based. In the, in the midweek, I, I, I encourage you, challenge you to read the entire book of Ephesians and to notice how Paul shifts. He, he in, the, in the first three chapters, Paul notes several things that are true about believers, true about the people of God. And then, in, beginning in chapter 4, he changes and talks about things that believers should do. And so this week I did that. I took my own advice and I read through much of the book and I noted 27 indicatives, 27 things that are true about you and me as, as believers. Let me just fly through a few of these for us. And, and if you want this, I'd be happy to send it to you later on. But we see in Ephesians 1, three that we're blessed. Ephesians 1.4, we're chosen. We also are in the Becoming holy and blameless. We've been predestined. There's something that God has appointed in the future for us. We've been adopted. We've been welcomed into His family. We've been redeemed and we've received forgiveness. We have an inheritance. We've been sealed. We've been enlightened. We're recipients of God's kindness. We were dead. And now we're alive. We were raised, we resurrected, and we're seated. With Christ in heavenly places, we've been saved by grace through faith. We are the handiwork or the workmanship of God. We've been brought near to Him. We brought, we are one with other believers. We are God, as we saw two weeks ago, created one new humanity in us. We are hearers or recipients of peace. We were formerly aliens, and now we're citizens of God's kingdom. We are former formerly strangers, and now we're. One family, one household. A holy temple with other believers. We're progressively realizing that tabernacle or that dwelling of God in us, revealing that to the world, even in love, as as Paul, as uh, Carl so beautifully prayed earlier. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We've been given boldness and we've been given access. God. I admit I probably missed a few things, and if you've got a few other things in there, feel free to pass those along. I'd love to know that. But these things are true about anyone who has received Jesus Christ as their Savior. These things are true about us. We have this relationship with God and with one another that is far in a way different from anything we have experienced in the world. And I pray that we are encouraged by what Scripture reveals. But then as we come to the text that we're looking at today, Paul takes a turn from these indicatives, from these things that are true about us to these things that we should be doing because of what's been true about us. And so he begins in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, he said, I, therefore, and as you know, whenever you read a therefore in scripture, it's good to figure out what the therefore is there for. I, therefore because of all the things that we just highlighted and all the other things that he's taught us in these first three chapters, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So because of all that we have in Christ, we are called in these in these three verses to do three things. And the first is to walk worthily. To walk worthily. Now, Paul is not talking about our gait. He's not talking about our strut. He's talking about our way of life. In fact, a couple of weeks ago in, in the midweek Bible study in the prayer gathering, we, we were looking at one of Paul's prayers where his prayer for the Colossian church is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the calling, just like Paul is telling us, telling believers, the Ephesian believers, and I think us to do. But I think it it requires, in order for us to understand this walk that we've been called into, we have to understand, first of all, that we can't do anything to earn our walk, to earn the salvation that we've been called into. We can't do anything to earn it. Ephesians 8 and nine says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For those who've been a part of the church for a long time, this is nothing new, you've heard this time and time and time again, we can't earn our salvation. But for some of us who, who are maybe just learning or just new to the church, new to this idea or exploring the ideas of faith, we have to recognize that our society is, is gearing us against this idea of, of not being able to earn our salvation. We love getting things that we can earn. We love earning paychecks. We love earning rewards. We love doing all these things. And yet here, we can't do anything to earn our salvation. But there are three things that we must acknowledge. First of all, we have to recognize our sinful, sinful condition, being fully separated from God because Romans three twenty three says, for all have sinned short of the glory of God. But secondly, we have to acknowledge that the only way to really pay for our sin is through death. And there's only two options here. One is your death. I know this sounds a little morbid, but the only way to pay for your sin is through your death or my death which results in eternal punishment from God. Hebrews 9, says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we have one option. One is our death resulting in eternal punishment, or the second option is through Jesus' substitutionary death. Romans six twenty three: For the wages of sin is death, the reward of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John 4, 10 says, in this love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the exchange, the replacement for our sin. And essentially recognizing that Jesus took all of your punishment on the cross, that's what we recognize, that because we can't do anything about it, we have to look at what Jesus has done. And so the third thing, respond to Jesus' call. Notice, you know, in the verse that we're talking about, it talks about walking in a manner worthy of the calling. We've been called into this relationship with God. We've been called into that. So I wonder, do you have doubts about your eternal home? Maybe you're being called. If it's raising questions in your mind, maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, come check it out. Do you long for a life that is at peace with God? Then maybe you're being called. Are you being compelled to consider God's gracious love for you? Then maybe you're being called. And so I want to encourage you. The thing that we can do, if Christ is calling us into a relationship with him, is to respond. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, even your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And again, I realize that for most of us, this is not new. This is just sort of laying a groundwork, but I want us to recognize that not only can we do nothing to earn our salvation, except recognizing that we have a sin problem, acknowledging that the only way to pay for that sin is through death, and then responding to what Christ has done. That's how we get into that relationship with God. But not only can we not do anything to earn that salvation, earn that relationship with God, secondly, we can't do anything to keep our salvation. It's not as though Jesus will allow something to happen to us. After all, one of the indicatives that we learned earlier that we read about is that we are sealed. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You and I, if we've responded to Jesus Christ, we are his forever, for all eternity. And so since we can't do anything to earn or keep our salvation, the joy and the challenge before us is to walk in a manner worthy of this life that we can't earn. It's as though we get to walk as though we could earn it and keep it, yet with the freedom and the lack of legalism that would accompany a performance-based salvation. And so Paul seems to note that our walks should be accompanied by three complementing traits, He says, first of all, the the first complementing trait is humility. He literally says, walk in a manner worthy of a color with all humility. Now, for first century Ephesians, humility would not have been a trait worth exalting. And yet, this is something that Christians are constantly called to over and over and over again in Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples. In Philippians 2, 3, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others as more important, more significant than yourselves. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, <clears throat> excuse me, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves also with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It sort of makes me ask the question, what does humility look like? What does it live like? Why is this element of, why is this expected to be an element of our worthy walk? You see, I think that when we realize that we are not worthy to have the salvation, have the relationship with God that we have, it should result in a sense of humility. When we realize we don't, we walk in, it should cause us to lay down our pride and yield our preferences to one another. Humility should allow me to show some grace to my brother or sister in Christ when I'm offended. Humility should allow me, allow us, to walk with strong and deep convictions, but not demanding that others see things exactly my way. Humility marks my walk when I make space for someone else to shine. There's a story told of two brothers who grew up on a farm. One went off the, off the farm after, after, you know, out of high school and he went on to college, got a law degree and made a big name for himself. And he came back one day and he talked to his brother who stayed on the farm and he said, why don't you go out and make a name for yourself? Hold your head up high so the world looks at you like they look at me. And the brother pointed To the field, and he said, See that field of wheat over there? He said, Look closely. Only the empty heads stand up. Those that are well filled bow low. Another way to say that is the branch that bears the most fruit is bent the lowest to the ground. Humility should allow space for others to get glory most importantly, God, to get glory. But in addition to walking with humility, Paul urges us to walk with gentleness. And gentleness here is not a personality trait. It's more like an active restraint. It it seems like it's the ability for someone to respond or to react with strength, but choosing not to. That's not to say there's not a response, but it's restrained. And throughout, I found it interesting, throughout the New Testament, I was looking at several places where gentleness and, and there are times when, when gentleness would just be in a big list. And it's hard to understand, well, what Paul, or, what are you exactly saying here in the New Testament? God, but in places where gentleness is not just a list, it talks about our interactions with other people. It talks about our responses. For instance, in Galatians 6.1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Or 2 Timothy 22, 24 to 25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, enduring, uh, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. In 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul is writing, he's confronting the church in Corinth. They're, they've been doing some really bad things and allowing bad things to happen. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, uh, lo- with love in a spirit of gentleness? So our worthy walk is not only accompanied with humility, but with gentleness. Gentleness in how we talk and interact. With one another. But there's a third accompaniment that Paul notes here in our worthy walk, and that is with patience or long suffering. In our calendar driven culture, patience seems like something that we schedule around or plan out of our way, and yet, patience is a virtue that is needed at the most inopportune times. Patience forces us forces me to remember that my schedule is not the priority. Patience allows, can allow us to take the time to pay attention to the fact that God might be doing something even in the midst of of what feels like an inconvenience. This week, I got to see Patience on display with Zoe as we uh, went to the fair. She was showing a bunch of goats and um, we would, she would, uh, especially she and Danielle would go there early to the fair to get the goats ready and do all that. And then they'd wait and wait and wait. And during that time of waiting, she would go up and ask folks, how can I help you? Because you know a lot of folks had more goats than they knew how to show because you can only do one at a time, really. And I, I loved watching her just be patient through all the waiting, spending hours and hours and hours waiting to have a few moments in the ring. And I wish I could say I was demonstrating that same sort of patience, but we got done with one thing, and I wanted to just okay, let's leave, let's go home, let's go back. I got stuff to do, I got things to do, and I was getting agitated and frustrated. And I be, I, I just, I learned a lot from Zoe this week. But patience needs to be something that we willingly mark, have an, as an attribute, have as a compliment to our worthy walk. So we are called to walk worthily with humility, with gentleness, and patience. But part of that walk includes, secondly, bearing with one another lovingly. And I, I found it interesting. Paul has three major verses, in these three verses. The first one is to walk. The third one is to maintain. And those are both imperatives. To do this, intended to. you. This is a direct command. Do this. But the third one, the one that we're looking at now, is, is in kind of a passive voice. Sort of implies this idea of as you go along, you're going to bear with one another. It almost in and of itself becomes kind of a compliment or an accompaniment to that walk with humility and gentleness and patience. The New Living Translation uh, states it this way. It says, making allowance for others' faults because of your love. Or the Lexham English Bible translates bearing as putting up with one another in love. I think we have to recognize we're all works in progress, and there's something that God is doing in each of us, refining us, sanctifying us, perfecting us. And yet one of the joys and challenges that we get in this life together as a church or as an assembly of called out ones is that we have one Savior and one destination and yet we're coming at it with different sins, different backgrounds, different inclinations. We get to put up with one another in love as God shapes and molds us individually together. He's going to take someone at one pace and someone else at another pace and we get to that joy of bearing with one another, putting up with one another. I've heard it said that a sculptor can take a piece of stone and has a, a vision or a picture of what, he, you know, he almost sees that sculpt that, that sculpture inside. And he's got to chisel, chisel away all the excess stone in order to reveal what he sees inside there. And, you know, partway through the process, the stone just looks like a big stone and then it begins to take shape, but it still looks ugly and it's not a work of art. Until it's done. And sometimes that being done can take years. And I think we have to recognize that God is taking a lifetime in each of us so we get that joy of bearing with one another. But there's one more command that Paul notes here, and that we get to walk worthily, that we bear with one another lovingly, but finally we are called to maintain unity eagerly. Maintain unity eagerly. Kind of makes me wonder, what what do you eager for? What are you eager for? What am I eager for? You know, have have you ever noticed that sometimes the things that we're eager for are things that are out in front of us, things that are just outside of our reach, Maybe it's, maybe it's that improvement in, as an athlete. You want to get better at running those plays. You want to get better at having that skill. You want to get better at being fit to be able to accomplish what needs to be done. Maybe what you're looking forward to, what you're eager for is that next vacation spot, that, that perfect place of peace or adventure. Maybe what you're eager for is to lose weight, that thing that's been out there for so long and you're eager to get it done. Maybe students, it's that eagerness to graduate. Or for those of us us with jobs, that eagerness to earn a promotion that's not quite there yet. Or that eagerness to retire. And I think so often the things that we are eager for are, are just out there, just in front of us, just out of reach. And yet Paul urges us to be eager to maintain Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I wish that I could say this was my personal eager desire all the time, but so often my attitude is to eagerly maintain peace or eagerly maintain an absence of conflict. And yet, this charge to maintain unity also implies that disunity is. A threat. Peter O'Brien, a commentator, notes that Paul's language here has an, urgent, or an, an urgency to it that is difficult to translate into English. This is something we have to be really forceful about, wanting to make sure this happens. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we began talking about this biblical community idea, we considered the fact that we are united and we reflected on the diversity that was present there in the first church church that church in Ephesus. And and earlier in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul noted that there was a dividing wall. There was a literal physical division between Jews and Gentiles. And he said that here in the church, God has torn down that because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has eradicated, forming us into one body, into one temple, into one tabernacle, into one household, and so even here, he's urging us to maintain that unity. And Paul reminds us right after these verses in, in Ephesians 4, 4-6, he says, Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. O'Brien it reflects on the importance of maintaining this unity, and he warns about what divisions might imply. He says, to keep this unity must mean to maintain it visibly, meaning it's not just some intellectual assent; It's not just some wish or some feeling. It must be visible. If the unity of the Spirit is real, it must be transparently evident, and believers have the responsibility before God to make sure that this is so. To live in a manner which mars the unity of the spirit is to do so despite the gracious reconciling work of Christ. It is tantamount to saying that his sacrificial death by which the relationships with God and others have been restored along with the resulting freedom of access to the Father are of no real consequence to us. Let me just cut out some of those extra phrases. He says, again, it is tantamount to saying that his, meaning Jesus' sacrificial death, is of no real consequence to us when we let division rear its head in the church. In other words, when I let my preference, my opinion, my background, my gifting, or anything that is mine getting in the way of the unity that Christ has secured for us, then I am essentially viewing myself as more important than Christ. Conversely, a walk that is lived with humility, gentleness, and patience recognizing, recognizes that this is Jesus' church. He is the head. Not it is his blood that secured our salvation. It is his body. We are his body. So let me close with a couple of thoughts. I, I entitled this sermon Intimate in some ways because I wanted to be a little bit cutesy if you know. On the front of your bulletin is is separated out, so a couple weeks ago we had united We are one body. Last week, uh, Eric helped us to see a little bit how we live with certain norms of togetherness and assembling and knowing one another and so today, intimate is there is this nearness implied in our unity taking. Many different people with many different backgrounds, different giftings, different sinful inclinations, and putting us into one body, one expression of Christ's body. It's as though all of those differences are pushing us out. It's as though all of those giftings, we might want to say, oh, this is better than that one, or this group of people should be raised above this group. And and everything is equal under Christ, and we get to be held together together with that intimacy. So I want to encourage us to think about something. As we move toward this schedule change on September 3rd, as as we move toward the beginning of community groups a little bit later in in the month, our hope is that these groups will foster fellowship. It will foster conversations. It will foster relationships that are stronger, stronger, creating space for us to engage with one another, getting us comfortable with one another. Yeah, there can be discomfort in nearness or intimacy. Our flaws are harder and harder to cover up when we're close to one another. But we also get to see the beauty of what God is doing in us, individually and collectively, more clearly, when we're close. But our hope also is that these groups will foster mutual discipleship, where we get to encourage one another to grow, where we get to help each other think biblically about what we're learning together. I'm looking forward to hearing and, 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 and listening to what a high schooler or a middle schooler or even an elementary schooler might apply the word that we're considering together. But also our hope as elders is that these community groups will foster a culture of prayer as we intercede with and for one another as we ask the Holy Spirit to work mightily in each other's lives when we contend on our knees together and separately as we each put off our old way of life and put on Christ. So as Paul as Carl prayed Carl I keep thinking you're the Apostle Paul. As Carl prayed, shifting to these groups is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to take an adjustment. It will require sacrifice. But I believe, we believe as elders, that this shift will help us to better walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've all been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, As we bear with one another in love, eager and eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray together, Father. We do.